gonna sound like a weird thing to say. I wanna have a little fun with the Bible today. A little Bible fun. So I need some volunteers who are gonna help me read the text later. Um, not right away, I've got a few things to say, then we're gonna get into the text from Mark chapter three. And I, so what I've done, I've color-coded the text based on the parts. So there will be a narrator, me, and then there will be some of you. Now, most of the text is like one or two lines, except if you get the part of Jesus, you got some work to do. Now, so before I ask for volunteers, here's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for people who maybe you were a frustrated uh, Shakespearean actor at some point in your life. Um, and so like, I'll need you to project. We want the online community to hear it. So um, I'm gonna need a few volunteers. I'll read out the parts in a second. Um, everybody does have a role. And here's your role. As we're reading this text, if there is a moment you think deserves a ooh, give us the ooh. Okay, don't hold back. Let's really get into this. Okay, number one, who would like to play the role of Jesus's family? It's like one line-ish, maybe two. All right, there we go. Who would like to play the role of the scribes? It's again, like two lines. Yes, I see that hand. Who would like to play the role of, uh, now listen, what I'm about to say, it's gonna feel like you might be feeling a little arrogant. <laughs> Who would like to play the role of Jesus? I like to read a lot. <laughs> Did you want to play Jesus? If it's, Do you, are you ready for this? Ready. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Your whole life has been preparation for this moment. Finally, we need somebody to be the crowd. Who would like to be the crowd? Yes. When you came in, I thought, I, I bet he's going to be the crowd today. I just, you had the look. Um, so uh, keep that somewhere safe. Um, you'll see the color code on the bottom for your part. Remember who you are. And uh, we'll get there in just a minute. So um, we're in the series on the Gospel of Mark. We're calling it Good News at the End of the World because Mark wrote his gospel at a time for him and his community that was the end of the world as they knew it. Their temple had been destroyed. Not yet, almost. You know my first thought? My first thought was, you know, that's been bound to happen at some point. And the fact that I've made it like 25 plus years without being booed, it was time. Uh, so, Mark, uh, Mark, Mark wrote at the end of the world for him and his community. And so they're trying to tell the Jesus story. They're trying, Mark is trying to insist that there's this thing called good news, even as they're sifting and sorting through the rubble that there's something good about this, something good that can be said. I wanna just recap where we've been. I'm not gonna do that every week. So when we get to chapter 10, I'm not gonna give you like nine weeks of stuff, but I think it's important for today for us to know where we've been. We began in Mark chapter one. And in Mark chapter one, a couple of really important things happened. First, we meet Jesus for the first time. And in the gospel of Mark, we do not meet Jesus as an infant in a manger with a drummer boy. Uh, when we meet Jesus in Mark, he's a fully grown adult and he's out coming out to the wilderness to be baptized by a guy named John. And after Jesus' baptism, he has this experience where the heavens open and a dove comes down and Jesus hears these words of affirmation that you are the beloved son with you, I am pleased. This is essentially Jesus having the moment where he's like, I've got some work to do in the world. And he begins that work by announcing his inaugural address, which is the kingdom of God isn't over here. It isn't over there. It isn't behind us. It isn't in front of us. It's here. And the way you connect with the kingdom of God, the kingdom, the dream, the beloved community of God, the way you connect with that 
is not by getting your doctrinal positions in a row, and it's not by signing the right religious statement. The way you connect is you are open to a change of heart and a change of mind. You think differently about God, about your neighbor, about your enemy, about the world. And Jesus says, when you begin to do that, you begin to see the kingdom. And this kingdom is the thread that runs through everything Mark's going to say. It's the message of Jesus. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's available. It's here now, today. And so Jesus starts doing some stuff. He starts calling some disciples. He starts doing some healings, and he starts casting out some demons and unclean spirits. And then we come to chapter 2, and there's this controversy that's building. Jesus does another healing, but when he heals the person, he doesn't just heal them. He says to them, your sins are forgiven. And people are like, whoa, 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 I think that's above your pay grade. And then he calls this disciple, no, this tax collector named Levi to follow him. What better way to disrupt the economic system of the empire than to call the tax collectors to leave behind their, their booth and to come live a different kind of life? And people are starting to ask questions like, why are you doing this? How are you doing this? There's all this conflict building. And so Jesus explains his teaching by using a metaphor. And he uses the metaphor of wine and wineskins. And essentially he says, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is lost and so are the skins. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskin. Is anybody in here, I learned, so if you make beer, you're a brewer. If you make spirits, you're a distiller. I just want to see if you, I didn't know this. Nine o'clock helped me. What is a winemaker called? What? Vintner. Yes, that word. Vintner? Vintner? Uh, yeah, I'm just going to call him a winemaker. Is that cool? Uh, this is what happened at nine as well. I just can't get the word. So a person who makes wine. Uh, Jesus is saying that in Jesus' world, when you would make wine, this thing called new wine essentially would be unfermented wine. Had not been through the fermentation process yet. And he says, when you get new wine, you put it into a new wineskin. What that meant was this, this thing still had some stretch. It had elasticity. It could grow because as the fermentation process happens, it, the, the wine, as it ferments, releases gas, and the skin needs room to expand to contain the contents. If you put new wine into an old, brittle wineskin, Jesus says, and he's right about this, when that process happens, it's going to explode and you'll lose the wine and you'll lose the wine skin and everything's going to be on the ground in front of you. And so Jesus is saying that his message is like this new wine. It's going to cause some fermentation. And if we're trying to hold the new wine in an old, unelastic, unmovable, unflexible wine skin, then we're going to end up being frustrated and ultimately it's all going to be on the ground in front of us. So part of this following Jesus business is about regularly changing, swapping, updating the wineskin that you're trying to hold. And my assumption is that Jesus doesn't mean this is a one-time thing. Like went to church today, got a new wineskin, good to go. But it's this regular, almost daily process of making sure we're flexible, expansive, and prepared for what the new thing is we're going to learn and what it's going to ask us to do. Now, I bring this up because I think there's this thing that we get, this trap we get stuck in where we think we get to the end of the journey. So how many of you have ever heard somebody say, I'm fully deconstructed? Or I'm fully reconstructed? Or I'm fully reimagined? There's this idea, I hear people say this sometimes, like, oh yeah, I started deconstructing my faith 27 minutes ago, fully deconstructed. When the reality is there is no fully deconstructed. There is no fully reimagined. There is no fully reconstructed. It is a process. I, I, 
Cannot believe I've been studying the Bible my entire life and just this week learned something that I had never thought of before. And it was unbelievably exciting. And I called a bunch of people and annoyed them with the thing I learned. But that's the process. It's this continual making sure that we're flexible, expansive, and growing. Because y'all change. Changing your mind, changing the way you think, changing the way you respond. Change is not compromise. Change isn't compromise. Change is the thing Jesus is inviting us to do so that we can stay current with the expansion, with the uh, knowledge, with the growth, with the dream of God for the world. If we're not always work, like opening ourselves up to growing, then we're going to miss the thing that's going on. So that's Mark chapter two, and we're gonna come back to that. It's an important idea. And then in Mark chapter three, here's a summary of what happens. Jesus performs a healing on the Sabbath, which generates more controversy. Jesus starts to attract a big crowd and he does some more healing and he does some more exorcisms. Then these last two are what we're gonna focus on. Jesus is accused of being in league with Beelzebul. So basically prince of, the prince or king of demons. Essentially they're saying Jesus, is, Jesus and Satan have formed a tag team is essentially the accusation. And then there's a bit about Jesus's true family and we're gonna look at both of those. Now before we have our really good Shakespearean actors read our text, um, I want you to know something about the Gospel of Mark that really is important for what we're going to read here. Um, the, technical, the technical term in biblical studies is intercalation. That sounds boring. The, my favorite way to talk about this is um, it's called the Markin sandwich. Doesn't that just sound better? It's a Markin sandwich. What is a Markin sandwich? It's this technique Mark uses throughout the Gospel where he starts a story, we'll call that story A, and then as he's telling story A, he interrupts it with story B. And then after story B, he comes back to story A. So it's like you've got bread and then you have filling. You have turkey, you have ham, you have pastrami. For some reason, some of you might have bologna. I don't know. But you're making a sandwich. And the inner part of the sandwich helps interpret the outer parts. Okay, does that make sense? That's this thing Mark does again and again and again. Okay, Mark chapter three, we're gonna start in verse 20. Are you all ready? Anybody need to work up, uh, limber up your vocal cords? We're all good. I don't want you to pull a muscle. Okay, here we go. Then he, Jesus, went home, and the crowd came together again so that they could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to restrain him, for people were saying, Oh, he's gone out of his mind. Yes! <laughs> Let's applaud that. that like, choices were made. You got into the people. Like, you were... Yes. <laughs> and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebul, and by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. This is a moment for all of you to go, ooh, yes. Wow, that was a really good ooh. <laughs> and he called to them, and he called them to him and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided amongst itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself as divided, he cannot stand. But his end has come. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man then indeed the house can be plundered. 
Truly, I tell you, people will be forgiven for their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an internal sin. For they had said... He has an unclean spirit. All right, pause. Yes. (laughs) Now we pause. How many of you have heard this business before, that there's this sin called the unforgivable sin, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? How many of you have heard of this before? How many of you have ever been terrified wondering if you committed it? You're probably safe. It's like, if you're, if you're worried about being a narcissist, you're okay. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, if you never ask the question, perhaps we have a problem. So here's what happens. Jesus goes on this, he riffs, he goes on this rant about the, how, how can you say that I'm possessed by an unclean spirit? Because I'm actually, I've tied up the strong man. I'm, I'm pillaging the house. This is not how it works. Now, then, after this sort of, we just went through A, then B. Now we come back to A. Then his mother And his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside asking for you. You were born to play the crowd. Well done. I studied last (laughs) night. And he replied, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Well done. Can we give them a hand? Now, I want to spend some time with these two questions. Um, the first is, who doesn't understand what Jesus, in Mark, we're in this, this text, but in Mark as a whole, who doesn't understand what Jesus is up to? And then, who does understand what Jesus is up to? Based on what we just read, I think we can say, first of all, somebody who doesn't understand what Jesus is up to is his family, right? So for Mark, as Mark wades into the controversial discussion that happens on Facebook every Christmas, Mary, did you know? <laughs> Apparently Mary doesn't know. She doesn't have a clue. They, they've been, they, they think he's, he's completely lost it. They think he's completely lost his mind. So they go and they try to actually take him back home. I mean, you can just think about this. Jesus had grown up in Nazareth. He's this precocious kid. He's, maybe they always thought he'd be a leader someday, but now he's left home and he's gone off into the world and they hear back home. You would not believe the stuff Jesus is saying. And actually he's making the wrong people pay attention to him. And this could end badly. So I don't read this just as his, his family's embarrassed of him. I think they're worried for him. I think they don't, they don't understand his message and they don't understand what he's doing in the world. And the best thing they think they can do for him is to take him back home and keep him from embarrassing himself and getting himself into bigger trouble, right? So Jesus' family doesn't get it. Also, in the Gospel of Mark as a whole, his disciples don't get it. One of the central themes of Mark is this idea of failed discipleship. Again and again and again, these disciples who are traveling and learning from Jesus just don't get it. My favorite example is in Mark chapter 8. Um, Jesus has just taken his disciples on a field trip and essentially said to them, who do you think I am? And Peter jumps up and says, I think you're the Christ. I think you're the Messiah. I think you're the one. And then Jesus says, okay, here's the thing. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be executed. And Peter says, absolutely not. (laughs) That's not, what, that's not how this is going to go. If anything, we're going to do this to other people. They're not going to do it to us. You know what Jesus says to Peter in that moment? 
get behind me, Satan. Satan. I think if you get called Satan by Jesus, that's an achievement, right? Now, Satan here is not get behind me, guy wearing like a bright red Lululemon jumpsuit um, who lives somewhere beneath the earth. Satan here is not a name, it's a title. And it's a title that essentially means adversary. And in the gospels, and even in the Hebrew scriptures, Satan is often tied in with this idea of violence. And so the question is, what kind of Messiah will Jesus be? Will he be the peaceful, nonviolent Messiah that the dove landed on? Or will he be the the version that some of his disciples envision, which is, we're going to start killing some Romans, get ready. Which will it be? So Jesus' own disciples just don't get what he's up to. And then you have the scribes, like the religious, some religious scholars and experts, they just don't get what Jesus is up to. Who does? Who understands? Who seems to be in step with totally getting who Jesus is and what he's doing in the world? The answer may surprise you. Notice Mark chapter one. Just then, There was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And just in case that's not clear, let's go to later in Mark 1. That evening at sunset, they brought to Jesus all who were sick or possessed by demons, and the whole city was gathered around the door, and he cured many who were sick with various diseases, cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because why? They knew him. They knew him. Mark chapter three, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, Jesus, they fell down before him and shouted, you are the son of God, but he sternly ordered them not to make him known. Another great marking theme is this idea of the messianic secret. People keep figuring out who Jesus is and he keeps telling them, don't tell anybody. And then they go tell everybody. Last one, Mark five, we'll look at this text deeper in a couple weeks. There's a man possessed by unclean spirits and the spirit's name is Legion. Essentially, Legion is a Roman uh, military regiment. And he shouted at the top of his voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Real quick, who seems to understand exactly who Jesus is? Demons. Now, I just wanna say this, believe whatever you want or need to believe around how literal demons are in the world. I think in the Gospels, especially this this clue is unclean spirits. And the way, especially in chapter five with the story of the Legion, I think we're supposed to understand Legion in the Gospels and people who are possessed and oppressed by these unclean spirits. Imagine this, what if the unclean spirits are symbolic of empire? And what if the oppression is is really meant to wink, nudge, and point at the colonial enterprise that Rome is doing in first century Palestine? that Rome has come in and taken over the land and taken over the resources and people are being harmed deeply and irreparably because of what Rome is doing. To put it like this, Jesus' family doesn't, know, doesn't get it. His disciples don't get it. The religious leaders don't get it. The empire absolutely gets it. They know exactly what Jesus is up to. They, they see the movement building around him. They hear his message about a kingdom, a kingdom, a commonwealth, a beloved community of God that stands against and in resistance to the Roman power structures. Are you with me? Yeah. I think that's what's going on. And there's this interesting juxtaposition, this interesting parallel throughout the gospel of the people you would expect to get Jesus and understand Jesus don't, And those that you would think wouldn't get Jesus at all, totally get it. And I would argue this still happens today. 
that the people you would expect to most get the message of Jesus, the people who wear the Jesus t-shirts and the people who wear the WWJD brace, that's, I just dated myself with that. Um, the people who maybe use the most Christian language, the people who are the loudest about Jesus and loudest about what they think the Bible is and says, they end up often advocating for and working against some of the very things Jesus came to talk about. Welcoming the stranger, liberation for the oppressed, care for the vulnerable, generosity, compassion, healing, ultimately this idea of love. Working, being a Jesus-identifying person and then working against the very things Jesus taught about, I think is what happens when we haven't paid attention to our wineskin. I think it's what happens when our wineskin has gotten brittle and the idea of if we take any new wine in this, it's gonna explode the wineskin. And so we prioritize protecting the wineskin and we miss out on the wine. Are you with me? So what I mean is, I mean this, we end up protecting structures and systems instead of people, right? We end up using the message of healing and liberation to harm and bind up. We end up valuing doctrinal correctness over the impact those doctrines are having on human flourishing. We would rather have our doctrine right even if people are suffering and miserable. We end up using razor wire to prevent asylum seekers and immigrants from finding safety. We end up ignoring genocide that is unfolding before our very eyes and we still call ourselves pro-life. And just so I don't leave us out, we end up becoming progressive in our theology but remain fundamentalist in our approach toward other people. when we don't pay attention to the wineskin, when we prioritize protecting the wine, it may be that the wineskin needs to crack and be shattered into a billion pieces so that we can bring in a new wineskin that can adequately contain the fermentation that needs to happen for the world to become a better place. And I think that's the message Jesus is bringing us in Mark. And he's stirring up all this dissent. And some of the religious folk say, actually, Jesus, we think you're working with the devil. We think you're a false prophet. We, we think you should be stopped. How many of you have heard, remind me, how many of you heard of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit thing that would, can't be forgiven? You know, my first real memory of this, and I know I heard it before this because I grew up in church all my life. My first real memory was when I was a senior in high school. We were having a revival and it was the last night of the revival. And if you grew up going to revivals, here's what you know. The last night is gonna be the, the most ferocious night because that's the last night you have to save all these folks before they go about their, their business, right? And so the revival speaker that week chose to end the revival on this text, on blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And he's preaching it, and he's, I mean, it looks like he needs to have a fire. He's sweating, and he's going for it. Now, what we didn't know when revival started that evening was that there would be a severe storm roll into town. And so while the service is wrapping up, people are weeping and gnashing their teeth. It's a big thing. This storm comes into town and a lightning bolt hits the transformer outside the church and there's a boom and all the power goes out. And then we find out there's a tornado warning. And so we all go down into the basement and we're all in the dark. We have you know, some flashlights and we have all just been told we have probably committed the unforgivable sin. And there's this one kid, and now he's not a kid. He's a grown-up now. He's got a family. I see him on social media. He was a kid. He was maybe a, a eighth grade, seventh grade at the time. And he was just visibly shaken. And he was going to each adult leader in the room and praying the sinner's prayer because he was afraid. 
I mean, the, the kid is being traumatized in real time by uh, what I think is a misunderstanding of what this text is ultimately about. I will tell you that later that night, another one of our youth group leaders decided that he was going to calm the crowd. So he stood up and asked for everybody's attention. And he, I kid you not, the first words out of his mouth were, we're all probably going to die here tonight. <laughs> and the collective moan and groan and weeping of the children filled the room. And when I think about this text, I think about that. And I think about all the spiritual and psychological trauma that people have encountered over the years wondering if maybe they've transgressed this. If you are concerned about it, I promise you, you're fine. Because this text, ultimately, what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of Mark? It is attributing to the satanic. So essentially, think enemy of what is good, the work of the Holy Spirit. That's, all, that's what Mark means by it. Listen to what Marcus Borg says. In Mark's context, its meaning is clear. If you do not perceive the presence of God's spirit in Jesus, if you think whatever was in him came from somewhere else, your life will not change. This passage is not about how to get to heaven. Rather, not discerning the spirit in Jesus is to stay the way you are and to fail to participate in the dream of God. I'll be totally honest with you. Do you know what I worry more about than where I go when I die? I really worry more about what impact I'm having right now. Because I don't know what's going to happen to me when I die. Nobody does. We may have faith, we may have beliefs, but nobody knows that they know that they know that they know. Everybody who's experienced it really isn't talking about it. You'll get that later. <laughs> what we do know is now. I know about this moment, and I know about the work that needs to be done in the world in this moment, and I know those moments of, or and forgive the churchy language, but that sense of call, that sense of like fire in the bones, that sense of there's a thing happening right in front of me, and I feel like it is partly my responsibility to do something about it. Borg says, that this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is what happens when we, we essentially check out and we fail to participate and fail to have our lives be transformed. It's to miss the whole thing. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is essentially an adventure in missing the point of what all this has been about all along. And then we come back to the last section of this, and I just feel like we need to wrap up with this. And that is, Jesus hears that his family's outside, his mother and his brothers and sisters. And they're wanting to talk to him. And by talk to him, they're wanting to take him home and shut him up. And Jesus says, who are my mother and my brothers and the sisters? And he looks around and he says, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my mother and sister and brother. I think it's important just to acknowledge that if you've experienced faith shift, if you've experienced whatever language you want to put around it, deconstruction, a reimagination, an unraveling, if you've experienced this moment of encouraging conviction where you just had to be honest about what you believed or who you loved or who you were, my guess is that it has probably cost you some in the family department for many of us. That'd be my guess. Anybody else have a little awkward time on holidays because you don't know exactly what you're supposed to talk about? I bet a lot of us know that pain. 
of, of being with the people you're somehow connected to, but feeling such utter disconnection. And then being with a room full of people you just met like a year ago or six months ago, or maybe two months ago and feeling like these are my people. And the heartbreak and the agony and the inner torture of that. And I don't know about you, but there is something for me of just having this inner, like I, Jesus seems to have had an answer for this right away, but I bet there was a sense. What We don't know. This is a snippet and a snapshot of somebody else telling the story of Jesus, but I bet there were sleepless nights for him. I bet there were moments where he was like, I, I wish my mom knew. <laughs> I wish my brothers could get it. I wish my sisters wouldn't be so worried about me and that I'm somehow off the path because I feel like I'm more on the path than I've ever been in my entire life. Now, for Jesus, I don't know how literal this is, but at some point toward the end of his life, it seems like some of those folks came back around. His brother ends up being one of the leaders of the Jerusalem church. By, by some, many accounts, his mother ends up being present at his crucifixion and present in his early, the movement that sprung up after the Easter experience. But there's something for me about this Jesus, the one who is familiar with the struggle to figure out where you belong when your place of belonging has been shifted and doesn't feel like you belong there anymore. And yet you find welcome and embrace in the arms and kindness of other people. The truth is the kingdom of God creates conflict, not because the kingdom of God's looking for conflict, but because not everyone is dealing with a new wineskin. And when folks with old wineskins are trying to contain the new wine, it explodes the whole thing. I think the work of following Jesus is about staying open, flexible, and ever expansive. That's why I think something like this still matters. A group of people gathering together, a collective, a gathering, a church, where we're encouraging one another, where we're challenging one another to stay limber and to stay open, to keep going in. I, my favorite metaphor right now is that this thing we're doing, this, this thing that we're being invited into, it's, it's like a laboratory. Now, I know faith and science aren't the same thing, of course. But what happens in a laboratory is you come in with some hypotheses and then you test them and what works, you keep, and what doesn't work, you let go of. That's what we're doing. What leads to human flourishing? We'll keep that. What gets in the way of human flourishing? Do we let that go? We are all gathered in a laboratory going, what is it that if we embraced it and allowed it to infuse and transfuse and transform our lives, it would make the world a little bit better of a place? And what we're, that's what we're trying to discover here. And to do that, we need to have new, fresh wineskins again and again and again and again. And again.